are listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM. This is Everyday City, a show by me, Meg Herod, about decoding urban planning and policy and about inspiring civic engagement to shape the city that we all want to live in. Today is a part two of our special two-part segment called The Roots and Shoots of Canada's Housing Crisis. In part one, we focused on the roots of the crisis, asking the questions, why are we in a housing crisis? And how did we get here? I was joined by two phenomenal guests, and we discussed our lasting colonial legacy and the deep inequity at the foundation of our housing crisis. We also discussed the history of policy in Canada and how decisions made starting in the 70s have layered on top of each other, compounding in today's crisis. We see today that this has an impact on both home ownership and rental housing. The crisis is felt by everyone, regardless of where you live in this country. If you haven't already listened, you can access the podcast on CFRC's podcast network under the scoop called Everyday City, The Roots and Shoots of Canada's Housing Crisis, Part 1. Here's a teaser. Home is about so much more than just a house, right? Home is about connection to place. It's about connection to community and to people. Um, it's about being in a relationship with the place I And so it's, for me, that, that's part of the beginning of this crisis is we, we, we understand our relationship to um, where we live mm-hmm. in a way that is, is very different than how, um, how, how it was before. That was an excerpt from an interview with Justin Weeb, where he discusses indigenous dispossession from their land due to colonialism as the roots of the crisis and the importance of connection to land and to home. Part two, which is today's show, is posing the question, how do we get out of this crisis? A question that does not have one answer, but actually has many. While something so complex may seem unsolvable, there are a lot of things that could make a big difference and can be done with a little political will. We're going to get into these in a little bit. I'm thrilled to be joined today by two guests, Dr. Martine August, an assistant professor at the University of Waterloo and a prominent housing researcher, and Steve Pomeroy, head of Focus Consulting and Senior Research Fellow for the Center for Urban Research and Education at Carleton University. I'm going to start our show off today by jumping back into my conversation with Martine, continued from the first segment. Martine's research focuses on multifamily, multifamily rental housing, financializations, and its impacts. The thing about housing that sets it apart from other financial entities or economic sectors is that everyone needs a place to live. It's fundamental. When we turn housing into a commodity that's driven by profit, do we lose sight of our need for a home? This is a question that Martine explores in our conversation. I also ask the question, why is the seemingly constant flow of new development that we see popping up all over the place, not alleviating or making a dent in the housing crisis? Martine has a simple answer for this. It's not affordable. 
I'm going to turn it over to her now to explain. Yeah, lots of new housing gets built every year. Lots of, uh, you know, we would consider like home ownership, you know, single family homes, that kind of thing. Lots and lots of condos get built every year. Um, I am talking, I think, mostly in my comments about multifamily rental housing, where we don't see affordability increasing, right? We also don't see that in other sectors of the market either. We just see rents going up and up and up everywhere. And so quite evidently, new development that we have coming online is not leading to this reduction in prices. There's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, sometimes you have, um, you have people who that are buying housing that are not buying it to live in. Um, and, and so often like what, if we look at the condo market, for example, lots of those are bought as by speculators as investments, and so their goal is not necessarily to go live in the home, right? And have it be an affordable home, but to sort of flip it later on. Um, and then all sorts of like, so the demand is often coming from different places, um, particularly um, with the rise of like short-term rentals, right? This is a good way to, to show that you can often have the users or the demand for uh, housing be completely delinked from local populations. So you might have a lot of people that need somewhere to live and then new condos get built and those units get rented to people who are um, renting them on Airbnb or other short-term rental platforms. And, and those can make the owner quite a bit more money than if they were to say rent that unit out to a person who lives in the city. And so um, that just drives prices up and doesn't do anything to help with the supply. In terms of rental housing, we're seeing the construction of some new purpose-built rental in Canada, which for many years we didn't see, right? This, there was like a big decline in that construction. And so it's still small, but certainly happening. Um, but the thing is when developers are building new purpose-built rental, they're building it for a more luxury client, luxury-oriented client. And the goal for building it is to get a good return. So it's only really getting built in hot markets and it's only getting built in places where you can justify or get away with, I should say, charging pretty high rents. Right. And so that is not new affordable housing getting built. And so when you're building luxury housing, it's not doing anything to help with the affordability problem. And I think that's just a, the trend that you can see across the board, right? Um, lots of people talk about this. If you look at say New York city, Lots and lots of stuff is getting built. Sometimes you're getting these tall towers get built for billionaires. <laughs> and that's not the type of construction that contributes to um, easing the affordability crisis because it's simply not affordable supply. And at the same time, we're not doing anything to ensure that existing housing doesn't get more expensive, right? Um, so if we look at rental housing, if you don't have strong uh, rent controls, those that uh, the rents will continue to go up. And that's what we've been seeing. So for example, in the province of Ontario, 
we allow for, or our government, I should say, allows for rent increases above the guideline. So you're only allowed to increase rent every month by a certain amount called the guideline. Uh, maybe it's not supposed to be more than 3%. This year it's zero because of COVID, but in other years it's maybe 1.8% or whatever. Um, but landlords can apply to increase rents above that guideline amount if they in, invest in certain major capital repairs. And so this leads to rents going up more, right? And as I mentioned before, landlords can raise rents if the unit becomes vacant. And those increases are often quite high. So on average, you're seeing um, rent increases uh, in Ontario and in Toronto that are a lot higher than the guideline because landlords have ways to increase the rent so much uh, every year. Right. Wow. So my last question for you. So how do we turn the, the dial back really to valuing the fundamentals and valuing having a home um, for the sake of being a home, not necessarily just for investment and that connection to place. So, so what do we, how, I guess, how do we decommodify housing is my question. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I kind of like the way that you talk about housing as a home versus as an investment, right? Um, kind of pointing to that like basic contradiction that means that if certain people are treating housing as investments, like, you know, a lot of the financial actors that I'm discussing, yeah, they're going to have totally different priorities for that housing than the people who live in it. So the people who live in it probably want to have somewhere affordable where they can stay for a long time or have a choice about when they move, they want it to be high quality and so on. Whereas an investor might want uh, the rent to go up, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and they might want to evict that person um, in order to make that rent go up even more. So they're their goals can be really at cross purposes. So you're kind of asking like, how do we prioritize that second kind of aspect of housing? Yeah. It's value as a home that provides people like a safe place to build their lives and engage with communities. And um, a lot of scholars speak about and activists speak about the importance of decommodification as you've mentioned. So taking housing and making it not be a commodity um, not something that's traded and uh, uh, bought and sold on the market, um, where people have this ability to stay there and have secure tenure and have it not be unaffordable. So one big answer to that is building more housing that's just non-market housing. Right. Uh, we used to do it in Canada, never in big numbers. Um, so I'm talking about social housing here, uh, public housing, co-ops, nonprofit housing. Um, the government used to do it and subsidize operation after uh, the, the housing was built. And we could do that again. And we could do it better too. So there are problems with the old social housing programs and those could be addressed to make those homes you know, less stigmatized and in some cases higher quality. But existing public housing and social housing that we still have is a very important resource that needs to be protected. Um, so ensuring that we protect existing non-market decommodified housing is kind of job one. Building more, um, I think, would be a great uh, approach going forward. Where might we build that? Well, we could build it on public land. Then like land is very expensive, a very expensive part of constructing any um, building. And we have lots and lots of public land already. So one way to get more decommodified housing would be to use existing publicly owned land for housing sites. Um, 
that could be built with government support um, and then run by nonprofits or social housing agencies or community groups uh, in ways that provide like dignified um, places for people to live. And then there's also the question of looking at who owns housing now, because we're losing, I mean, there's work by uh, Steve Pomeroy, who's at the University of Carleton, uh, Carleton University. And he talks about how we're losing housing, affordable housing at a much faster rate than we will ever be building it. Yeah. And in part, this is say, the, the loss of privately owned housing to real estate investment trusts, private equity, asset manager firms, huge companies like Starlight Investments, Canada's the biggest landlord or Timber Creek, you know, these very large financial firms are buying it and making it unaffordable. So yeah. stopping the loss of affordable private housing is also important. How do we do that? How could um, non-market actors acquire and manage that housing? I think those are important questions to consider if we actually want to do something to stop it. Um, and there's definitely like a lot of maybe that would be an uphill political battle because lots of people benefit from treating housing as a commodity. Uh, it's a very profitable asset class, um, yeah. but it's not at all impossible to decommodify it. And I think that there's lots and lots of public support for the idea that housing should be prioritized for its value as a home and not its value as an investment. Thank you again, Martine, for sharing your expertise. Martine mentioned that housing is getting built for the first time in a long time in Canada. Part of the reason for that is our national housing strategy, which was passed in 2017. This is a plan to create a new generation of housing in Canada. While things are being built, Martinez brought up the mismatch in having a home for a home and having a home for investment. The importance of decommodification of housing. To truly do this, we need housing that's built for people to live in, that's built expressly to be affordable. Martine mentions public land as a really great option for this. She also says we need to protect the housing stock we have in addition to building more affordable housing. My next guest is Steve Pomeroy. Steve has been very involved in housing advocacy and policy research in Canada. He is world-renowned for his work in housing. Steve is currently a research fellow at Carleton University, in addition to having his own consulting firm, Focus Consulting. The question I pose to Steve is, can we build our way to affordability in Canada? You will hear that there are many pieces to this puzzle in addition to just housing. You'll hear Steve talk about income support, non-market models of housing, and the true cost to build, among other things. Over to Steve. So, I mean, yeah, you know, in your earlier question, you sort of asked, and, and in, in your email, you sort of said, you know, can we build our way out of this? Yeah. And the reality is, because those folks already live in an, in an adequate, suitable house, and they just pay too much, does it make sense to go to try and build new affordable slash social housing for those 7,000 households? When in actual fact, you know, if they're paying 38% of their income for, uh, for their rent, you know, the difference between 38% and 30% might be 150 bucks a month. We can give them $150 a month tomorrow. 
uh, whereas to supply, to build a new unit to help them would take us four years. So from an efficiency point of view, we can do it much more quickly. From a cost effectiveness point of view, we can do it much more cheaply. Even though you have housing need, because the, the historical sort of preoccupation of the, the nonprofit you know, housing sector has been to create supply, um, but supply is not actually the answer if the issue is just affordability. A housing allowance, a housing benefit, a mechanism like that is much, has much more effectiveness uh, than, than, than building new. And are we seeing enough of that level of support? So are, is a, are our priorities um, balanced or are we seeing a need to put more into these supports you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely, we do. I mean, if you look at, you know, as I say, historically, in, 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 and Canada is the only country in, in, the, in, the, in the sort of the, the, sort of the, the, the um, uh, OECD, you know, G7, whatever grouping you want to use of advanced, advanced mm -hmm. economies, that doesn't have an extensive, uh, e either extensive and or entitlement housing allowance, rental allowance kind of assistance program. We do have some rental assistance embedded within our welfare system, within the welfare rates, that kind of stuff. But as an explicit you know, housing solution, we, we are, we are you know, lagging the rest of the world. And we have for 40 years, uh, or more than that now, since the you know, 1950s, 70 years, um, uh, you know, SSA been solely preoccupied with building new, so-called affordable and or social public, whatever, version it took and, and a very very small number of uh, what you were previously rent rent supplements so contracts with landlords to provide some assistance and then in the national housing strategy which was just announced in 2017 and implemented starting in 2018 it does for the first time include a, a new approach called the Canada housing benefit which is intended as a housing allowance but it's it's very very modest in scale and scope uh, I did an analysis for CMHC on, uh, you know, if we, if we were going to develop a, a housing benefit program, and if we wanted to re either remove half of households in need or all of households in need, what it would it cost? Yeah. And I estimated it would cost around about three and a half billion dollars a year nationally. So that's per year. So over 10 years, that would be $35 billion. The national housing strategy basically provides uh, uh, $2 billion to be cost matched by the provinces and territories to $4 billion. So we have one-tenth of the quantum of funding in the system that we need to fully implement that kind of a program. Uh, but so, right. you know, the politicians listening to the squeaky wheel, right? So all of the, you know, the advocates for affordability say, no, 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 no. Don't do rent supplements. Don't do housing allowances. You just give us more money to build new. Um, but you know, they're really overlooking the, you know, the, you know if you, if you wanted empirically based policy development and you define the problem as I just did, the yeah. logical solution is to expand housing benefit. Now, that's not to say that's the only thing we should do right. you know, as, as we increase, uh, you know, if population increases and we need more affordable housing, certainly, um, you know, buildings and more of it is not a bad thing, but it shouldn't be the, the primary and or only focus of policy, which historically for the last 60 years in Canada has been the case. Right, right. And I'm, I'm curious too, I know you've been doing some recent, like very recent work on erosion of sort of our moderate and existing rental stock right. um, that's being basically torn down and redeveloped and is not in, you know, as a result of that is not affordable housing. And right. so 
you know, with your current research, what what are you recommending or or, or what are you advocating for? Yeah, and, and there, because I mean, again, with this preoccupation of, of building new and um, uh, you know addressing affordability, building our way out of the affordability problem, essentially, is which is what the national housing strategy is trying to do. Um, the it, it, it grossly overlooks this issue, and so when we when we look at the number of low rent units that are available to low income households, and we, whether we look nationally, and so between two thousand eleven and two thousand and sixteen, those five census years, mm-hmm. three hundred and twenty two thousand units nationally, and Kingston, it, the number was around about uh, two thousand six hundred units um, uh, of units that had been renting in two thousand eleven at below seven hundred and fifty. And we're no actually it was closer to three thousand actually in Kingston. Um, were were no longer uh, there. They were somewhere else. Now, where do those units go? So there there are a couple of things that are happening here. One is, um, as you say, the, the the those units or those properties are demolished for redevelopment. And and you know, and we tend to see this. You know, you know, most cities in Canada mm-hmm. um, have uh, intensification policies because they don't want sprawl environmentally. We don't want to be you know be taking out more farmland we want to build up rather than out so there is planning logic he was a planner would, would understand this um to those intensification policies but the consequence is that a lot of that sort of rental stock was built in the 50s 60s 70s when the baby boomers were creating rental demand and there were funding programs and tax incentives and a whole bunch of things that resulted in us building quite a lot of rental housing in those years so that stuff's 50 years old now and you know it's your typical medium density three four story walk up apartment that you see around around Kingston you would have seen a bunch in Vancouver and now the zone you know with intensification you can put eight stories on that property so you knock the units down so you had a a 30 unit building 50 years old the rents were moderate probably less than the median rent they might have been 90 percent of the median rent so they're already inherently affordable so we knock down 30 units and we build 10 10 stories of you know 80 80 new units all of which the rents are probably 140 or 150% of the average market rent if they're rentals and all their condos. So they're not available to the rental market except by investors buying them. So we, we've lost a bunch from that. But we also lost a bunch from uh, capital funds and real estate investment trusts uh, who go out and purchase these existing properties and which they identify, they see a building, mean, this 30 story, this 30 unit building, and they, they, they define it as an underperforming asset. Right. You know, we in the affordable housing sector would define it as affordable housing. Uh, so they see this underperforming asset and they say, well, geez, you know, this thing, it's only 90% of the median market rent. If we buy it and we do a little bit of, you know, some improvements and, you know, maybe it is in not in great shape. So we'll fix the building up, which is a good thing. Um, but because uh, legislation allows us a, a current tenant leaves, we can basically raise the rent to whatever the market will bear. If we fixed it up and the rents are currently 800 bucks a month, and you know, now, now we could rent it for, for 1200. So on turnover, let's basically raise the rents. And, and because we want to renovate it, let's actually ev- evict all the existing tenants so that we can do the construction. And so we can basically toss out 30 people with rents at 800 a month, renovate the building and bring in 30 new people at 1200 bucks a month. So the consequence of that, what's called financialization, is really having a significant effect on reducing the affordable supply. And so if we don't address that erosion problem, we can spend the $40 billion in the national housing strategy to go backwards. So right. we, we, you know, how, so the, then the question becomes, how do we address this erosion problem? And there's two ways of doing that. One is if you can't beat them, join them. 
So you basically create a funding mechanism under the national housing strategy that allows nonprofits to go and purchase these, this 30 unit building. And if it's got that redevelopment potential, they can redevelop it as a nonprofit and make sure those at least 30 of those new units are in fact uh, you know, affordable. Um, that we can also do things to try and slow down or stop the big capital firms from doing what they're doing. Right. And so are we, do we need to see sort of an insurgence of creativity in the housing typologies we're seeing? And I'm thinking of things like more models of co-housing, more models of cooperatives, um, different types of housing that could be within the continuum of affordability that we're not seeing because we're not seeing a creativity in our housing market. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's not much so much creativity as it is economic uh, capacity and effective demand. Um, you know, the, the market will build to the maximum demand that's in the marketplace. And yeah. so if there's demand for, for large 3,000 square foot homes that they can sell for $500,000, that's what they'll build. You know, would they, would they, they take that same lot and build four, four units of uh, you know, 750 square feet, which would be the same amount, same amount of square footage, but create four units. Uh, they, you know, they, don't, they don't perceive the, the potential uh, surplus and benefit, uh, profits from doing that. Um, so you've got a construction industry that is very much driven to meeting the top end of demand, not the bottom end of demand. And the lower you get down that demand curve, you move from effective demand into ineffective demand. So those people don't actually can't pay enough to make it worth the builder's while and the private and the market's while. Um, and so then you have to look at non-market models, which I think is what you're talking about there in your, your cooperatives and your, uh, yeah. your co-housing, those types of things. And there do we have the capacity and the fiscal fiscal ability uh, in in that in the community sector, the nonprofit cooperative sectors, to do that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, the cost to build is the cost to build. And there's no such thing as building affordable housing. You build housing at cost, and then you figure out how to subsidize it. You can either subsidize it by subsidizing on the capital side, so you don't have to carry as much debt, and then your rents can cover your operating costs, or you can subsidize it on the operating side in the form of housing allowances to help people pay for the housing you've built at whatever cost it costs to build it. If it's still profitable to build these other models, you know, maybe the return on investment takes longer, but there's still value, you know, then why, we do have a lot of social developers, you know, not as many, but we do have some. Why are we not seeing as much going towards, I don't know, this, this type of housing that's maybe not as much as a condo, but still profitable. I think where, where it gets a bit tricky is it, 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 you know, what segment of the income band are you trying to help? So we're kind of betwixt and between. So that the, the options for homes folks, they're targeting people sort of at the, the upper end of the rental market of the folks who can't quite afford to get into regular home ownership. So those, you know, you know they're, they're probably above core need, but they're below median income, that kind of group. Whereas traditionally we've seen, the, you know, social housing, public housing has been very much a social program and, and, and targeting the most vulnerable. Well, if you want to target the most vulnerable who, you know, let's take the case of singles coming out of the shelter and there are no ODSP benefits. If you've been in Ontario long enough, you'll know that's the, you know, the, yeah. the disability pension part of the, the welfare system, um, which gives you $429 a month to cover your, your rent, um, including lights and utilities and everything else. Um, at that price point, 
even a, a very, very benevolent, want to do good nonprofit can't make the economics work. Okay. Um, and as I said, our, our constraint is the notwithstanding all of the rah-rah about this is the largest ever commitment of the federal government to housing and $40 billion, now $55 billion. Yeah. It's a drop in the bucket relative to the level of need. Thank you, Steve. Steve has so clearly articulated the complexity of this crisis. However, he also has a lot of suggestions for solutions. He's made the case that income supports are an important part of this story, and Canada is frankly behind on this. Both Martine and Steve have made the argument for stronger policy, particularly around rent controls and stopping real estate investment from transforming rental housing into high-end of market housing, leading to displacement and erosion of our affordable housing. Steve's also made the case that housing is expensive to build, regardless if it's affordable or not. Unless support is going to affordable housing, it's not going to get built. The market won't build it. We need very targeted strategy to make these solutions happen. So much to think about here. And that wraps up this two-part series on Canada's housing crisis, the roots and the shoots. This is Everyday City, I'm Meg Harrod, and you're listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM. If you take anything away from these two episodes, I hope it's that housing can't be a commodity if we want it to be a home and if we want it to be available to everyone. Love you.